Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to be able to worship with you again. If you're new today, I want to say welcome. I'm so glad that you have come and joined us. Um, Today is a little bit of a different Sunday. It's at least a significant Sunday for Redemption Hill. Today is a commitment Sunday that we have been calling the church toward. And so if you're new, that's, it's actually a great Sunday for you to be here because we're going to talk about what a church is and what a church does. Um, so whether you're checking us out as a church or if you're not a Christian and you have interest in knowing those questions of what is the church all about, my hope is that today will be fruitful for you as well. Let's pray and we're going to open up God's word together. Father, as we come to you this morning, we come with a deep desire that your spirit would move in us and among us. We pray that you would help us to be able to see what your word has for us. And we do pray that you would use Redemption Hill Church as an instrument in your hands for the good of this city and for your glory. Father, we thank you for other churches that are here that are faithfully proclaiming your word and faithfully doing your good work, that that none of us are alone in this. And we pray that you would help us as a church to be able to commit together to be a part of your work and joining you in it. And so we lift our time to you today and pray that you would shape our hearts in the time we have together. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this morning would be pleasing to you, our rock, and our salvation. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Fourteen years ago, we now, we were taking our first steps toward planting a church. Um, Fourteen years ago, in the end of February, we didn't know yet that it would be here in D.C., but it developed pretty quickly in March. And and, and so we moved in July of 2008. 10. Um, my kids were five, three, and one, and now one of my kids has graduated high school. And some of, we were talking about this uh, at the elder retreat this week that for some of you, you've watched my kids grow up with the church. And, it's, um, and this has become very much our church family. Along the way, planting a church, one of, the, one of the great things in planting a church is that, especially early on, you don't have the baggage and difficulty of the presuppositions that exist in a church. But it also means it's a challenge because you have to think through everything. Like, what translation of the Bible are you going to use in general? What, how are you going to contextualize ministry for a given place? What is a service order going to look like? What are, how are you going to celebrate the sacraments? What does governance mean? How, you know, and how do we as a church faithfully live out the calling God has put on us in this place that also extends into other places? And really, it gets down to the question in planting a church and starting a new church, what is a church? We're not the first ones to ask that question, thank God. 
So there weren't a lot of wheels we had to reinvent, but there are a lot of different takes on how to answer some of those questions. Well, a year ago at Redemption Hill, we introduced an initiative that we've called Dwell. A call to our church to dwell as an enduring and faithful presence here in D.C. And we are at a midpoint refresh. March 5th last year was a commitment Sunday, and so we're now at the end of February, and today is, is a commitment Sunday as well. Now again, if you're not a Christian, or if you're new, you picked a great Sunday to join us, and I hope you'll be able to hear that for us, this commitment Sunday isn't just a building campaign, it is not just about money, that we are coming to the core of, and foundations of what a church is, and what, which is an expression of what Christianity is, as, a, as an outpost for the gospel in the kingdom of heaven. So there are lots of places we could go in scripture today. And in fact, as we were working as a staff team, as I was thinking about, okay, we had, you know, a few weeks ago, February 4th, we had a vision Sunday where we walked through the foundational mission and vision and values of Redemption Hill Church and what we think God has called us to in this place. And and as as we were talking about it, I was like, you know, on, on Commitment Sunday, I think it'd be great to just kind of do like a survey of the New Testament on what a church is. That sounded awesome until I started getting into the texts and started going, how am I going to boil this down into a sermon for one Sunday? Um, I feel like this could have been a series for six months. And so I'm going to try to distill all that for us today and do so in a time that still gets us out of here in time for Ebenezer to meet. But today we're going to start in in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a passage that shows us some of the foundations of how to think about what a church is. Because it talks to us about Christ and his sacrifice. Now, in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about salvation itself. That without Christ, we are, by nature, in sin. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. That all of this is God's grace. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast and that we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it goes on then to describe what happens then, because our salvation, coming to Jesus in faith, is not just an individual pursuit. Way too often we think about it that way. We think about our personal walk with Jesus, but it's not just personal. We're brought into a community of faith. And so it goes on to talk about the hostilities and the dividing walls that divide human beings. And it says, Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so we're going to talk today very basic outline, what, what a church is and what a church does. And so I was looking, I was thinking about this and thinking, okay, these, are, these topics aren't unfamiliar. I mean, we've, Redemption Hill it counts its birthday on August 21st of 2011, and so we're, we're coming up on 13 years this fall, or end of summer. 
And so, and so I was thinking about it. I was like, What's, we've preached about this a lot. And I looked back at some of the previous series and whole sermon series we've done on the nature of the church. And, and it was kind of fun looking back. And so I, I put together, we, it took two slides to be able to capture them all um, over the years. In 2011, that, that beautiful brown graphic in the top left corner was when I was our graphic designer. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and so that, that was our first, that was the series that we were in when we officially counted the birthday of Redemption Hill Church. And then over the years, we've had many more. And so it went on, these are the, some of the earlier ones, and then it's been on more recently as well. And so this is not an unfamiliar topic, but it is one that we need to come back to again and again because it's easy for us to get twisted up on what a church is and what a church does. Every group of people... If, if we don't, if we're not careful to correct it, we will always turn inward. We will always become insular. And so it takes a constant reminder of why we exist in order to be able to fulfill that. There's different metaphors in the New Testament. Some of the most, most prominent ones um, I, I tracked down and made sure that you could see some of the references that the church is called the body of Christ at several points along the way in the New Testament, that we are Christ's body, he is the head, and individually we are members of that body that do the good work of God together, that we're gifted by one spirit, one Lord, but with various gifts. The church is called the bride of Christ, both in the epistles and in Revelation, that he is described as the bridegroom that has come for his bride. The church is called the family of God, that we are sons and daughters together. That we're called God's house, that a household is being built. And then the last one was hard to capture without it being a little bit longer. Because we are called the temple of God, but it's important to note that it's with living stones, with Christ as the foundation and cornerstone, and the spirit dwelling within it. And so a local church is these things. The local church is a manifestation of the one true church. And so as we come together each Sunday, we are an outpost of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And it doesn't, it's not limited to a place and a gathering in time that then we scatter from this place and take the good news of the gospel wherever we go. Our statement of faith helps us here too. Point seven of our statement of faith says, God's gospel is now embodied in the new community called the church. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. And the Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Now, why are we getting into all this? Why am I bringing out different texts? Why are we doing a survey of the New Testament? Why are we bringing out points in our statement of faith today? Well, it's because if we are calling all of you who call Redemption Hill Church your home to commit to something with us, we need to know what we're committed to. And so that's the hope today. We see that the church is a regenerated family of God, brought to life by God's Spirit, under qualified leaders, unified by God's Spirit, receiving the word of God through preaching and teaching and responding to the gospel and worship. That the church administers the sacraments by baptizing people into unity with Christ and fellowship in his family, the church, and calling people to the Lord's table. 
Again, we're not the first to ask this question. It became a pretty prominent question in the 16th century. For centuries, at least in the West, the Roman Catholic Church was the only church. And so when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg and ignited the powder keg that existed that that exploded into the Protestant Reformation, and different streams and different splintering groups were trying to determine what is it that makes a church? We've got to think about this carefully now because if we're not joined with the church at Rome, then what is it that defines a church? It's a question that still comes up today, and, I, and this is the, we get so bent out of shape and argue so many things in, in, among churches and Christians, and if you go on, online and see on social media the kinds of debates that go on, it's, it would be amazing how much less we could argue and how much more work we could get done if we just paid attention to what has been brought down through the ages and thousands of years of brilliant people thinking about God's word in our calling. So in 1561, the reformers answered these questions with the Belgic Confession. Now, I'm guessing that this has been part of your daily reading this week. (laughs) Um, I know that we're all really interested in the 1561 Belgic Confession, but I do think this is helpful. It says, the marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if it maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, and if church discipline is exercised in punishing sin. So three basic marks. To preach the gospel, to show the gospel, and to protect the gospel community. These are the three marks that define, at least foundationally, what is a church. And so first, we're called to preach the gospel, that our foundation is God's word, that we come under the authority of scripture first and foremost. It is the final arbiter in any debates that we might have. That we are firmly rooted in the inerrant and infallible authoritative word of God, the Bible. The scripture is indispensable for people's spiritual development, which is why we see in 2 Timothy, as Paul is instructing the young pastor Timothy, and he says to him, all scripture is breathed out by God. This was a word that Paul coined in the Greek language. It did not exist before. But as he was trying to grasp at what, how do we define what God's word is? How do we define scripture? It is God breathed, that he is the one who has breathed these things out. And, and scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so he went on then, just after that, he says to this young pastor, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, who is to judge the the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so if the church doesn't preach rightly preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it ceases to be a church. We, we need to cling to the sufficiency of scripture for our, to focus our worship and to shape the community and to drive our good work. And so we need to, there's different ways. I think this is one of the things that you have to be careful with too, that 
Um, I mean, we planted Redemption Hill. I love church planting. We invest in church plants. We've helped plant churches in Mexico City, in Belfast, in Havana. We partnered with a church plant while we could. That we, We've been involved in churches around the D.C. metro area and now, right now involved with one in Harrisburg, Virginia. So I love planting churches, but in planting churches, a lot of times the, the focus can be on innovation and creativity and how are you going to engage people differently than before. And there's an element to which those things are true insofar as they take the true gospel of Jesus Christ and make it accessible to people in the place that they live. But innovation can only go so far. We need to find ways to contextualize the gospel to meet the needs of our city without compromising the foundation of the gospel. We, we need to be clear that as a church, we will never compromise God's word. That we won't soften scripture to try to make it more palatable. But we must stand boldly on God's word and pray that the spirit moves and increases and multiplies it. That is one of the things, the, the main character in the book of Acts is not Peter in the first part or the apostle Paul in the second part. If you read the book of Acts, it is striking the points at which Luke, the author, details and the word of God multiplied and increased. It is the advancement of God's word that is, that is the driving factor in the book of Acts as the church has started. And so as a church, we've got to preach the gospel. Now, that might seem obvious to some of you, but those of you who have been around and seen churches that don't, you go, well, yeah, that's pretty essential. The second is to show the gospel. Now, remember, in our statement of faith, it says that the Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances or sacraments, the baptism of the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. They're not the means of salvation, but when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. And I love the language here, that they confirm and nourish the believer. Baptism is a powerful display of, God, of Christ's redemptive work as we are brought into unity with Christ in his death and resurrection, and then into the new covenant family in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Lord's table reminds us every single week as a church that we've been reconciled to God, we've been reconciled to one another, and that the good news of Christ's salvation is celebrated with a family feasting at a table together. And so that is a reminder week in and week out that Christ's body has been broken, that his blood has been spilled, and that we come together for that reason and to celebrate his resurrection. And so we gather weekly, we worship God through preaching and singing and praying and giving and observing baptism of the Lord's Supper, celebrating Jesus' resurrection, and then that worship extends into our individual lives. And so we, it's right preaching of the gospel that makes a church, it's right presentation of the gospel, showing the good news of the gospel through the sacraments, and then protecting gospel community. And it says specifically in the Belgian Confession, if church discipline is exercised in punishing sin... That's not exactly warm and fuzzy, is it? When you think about church discipline, what is it that comes to mind immediately? My guess is you think about excommunication, people being removed from community. At Redemption Hill, we like to think about things a little more fulsomely than that. I have three kids, and as they're reaching, have reached their teenage years, and one has launched out of the nest and is down in Charleston now, it's scary to be at a point where you're like, okay, we had 18 years, and uh, 
Let's see how this goes. <laughs> um, but discipline for kids is not just punishment. We use discipline in different ways, but somehow when it comes to church context, we only think about the punitive aspect. But, but it takes discipline to go to the gym. It takes discipline to watch your life and rhythms, to, to be able to get enough sleep so that you're ready for work the next day, to get enough sleep so you're ready to worship the next morning. It takes discipline to, with finances. In every area of our lives, there is a good aspect of being disciplined. And in the church, we need to think that way, too, that discipline is more than just rebuke. It is, it, remember that God's word to Timothy, as Paul said, it's breathed out by God and it's useful for reproof and correction, but also for training in righteousness. And so there's an aspect of church discipline that the church acts first and foremost like a family, and so we walk alongside each other, helping each other to know how to live this life, how to engage in God's good work, where he has put us, how to, how to walk with Jesus and closer to Jesus. And, and so for a church, having, having mechanisms in place where we are actually holding each other accountable, which at Redemption Hill, the, the mechanism for that is membership. That if you're a member of the church, you're committing to the church in a different way and submitting yourself to the accountability of your life to the church. We read about this in the New Testament at various spots where we're told, like those of you who are spiritual, if you see somebody in sin, bring it to them and you'll save them. That, that we see in, the, the clearest example, though, comes in First and Second Corinthians. In First Corinthians, Paul calls something out, and he's because the, the Corinthians, if you want to go and read like Christians Gone Wild, it is the Corinthian church. Like they are, it is crazy town. And yet Paul says at the very beginning, you are holy ones. You're saints sanctified by Jesus. He says, now, in light of that, we have some things to talk about. And one of them was they were very proud of the spiritual gifts that they had, and they, they were over-utilizing them and over-focused on spiritual gifts. And so there's a whole section, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, that talks about the spiritual, spiritual gifts and their use in the church. But before Paul gets to that, there's a point where he says, okay, you all are pretty arrogant about your salvation and connection to Christ, but in your midst, you're tolerating something that even the pagans despise. Because a man in that church was sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul's saying, this can't be. And so with this individual, we have an understanding of what good church discipline looks like. And he says to them that when they're gathered all together as the church, he says, I'm present with you in spirit, even if absent in the body. And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that language is strong. But do you see, I want you to notice something. What is the purpose in 1 Corinthians 5 of calling this man to repentance for his sin? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline must always be restorative. It's never just punitive. It always has to have a call toward repentance and salvation. In 2 Corinthians, I'm convinced that this is the same guy that Paul is talking about. And he goes on then because the Corinthians took his words and um, overreacted a bit. That they then cast this guy out, but there wasn't much chance for restoration, which some of you I know have experienced in churches. It's terribly painful, and it's a horrible, horrible thing to have happen. 
But Paul talks about restoration. He goes on to say, now, listen, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in, in some measure, not to put it severely, too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, the guy turned around. You've, you've done enough here. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, I have forgiven. And I, if I forgive it in anything, it's for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we won't be outwitted by Satan for we're not ignorant of his designs. And so within a church, part of a calling to a true church is preaching the gospel, showing the gospel through the sacraments, and protecting the community of the gospel. But it's important in that, and this is something I really want to be clear on. There are too many times that Christians take ethics of the kingdom of heaven and decide that they need to be applied indiscriminately to all people, even those who don't claim Christ. Paul addresses that back in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says to them, he says, listen, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning, this is clear, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. And so this is important. Church discipline and a call toward holiness to follow Christ's commands in obedience is what we are called to within the church family, within the body of Christ. Not to scream about the sins of those who are not here. Too often, that's what has happened. And too often, the anger of Christians toward non-Christians has diminished their witness to the gospel. The truth is, you will never reach out to or tell good news to someone you hate. That's what we're called to love everyone, but to love our enemies as well. So church discipline is within. But the importance of protecting the community is, is something that is also we need to be careful of beyond just obvious things like what's called out in 1 Corinthians 5. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together warned, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. And so as a positive vision, is, is if you're going to be a part of a church, come in and love people well and, and seek to care for people well, and community will build around you. But if you come to a church to consume, you will never quite be satisfied because it will never measure up for you. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're, we're shown what it looks like to be a church together and what we're called to in light of our calling in Christ. When, when Paul says there, I, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so Redemption Hill Church, when we talk about what a church is, we talk about that we, a church, we are called by God, we exist to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, gospel-shaped community, and gospel-driven mission, which leads us toward what a church does. 
A church exists to glorify God and to join God in his good work for the sake of his glory and the joy of all people. The next point in our statement of faith says this, we believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. With God's word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. And so what a church is, is where God's people gather together to glorify him through gospel-centered worship, gospel-shaped community, and gospel-driven work, marked by right preaching of the gospel, demonstration of the gospel through the sacraments, and protection of the community of faith. And then what we do is we follow the two great, the great commission and the great commandment that Jesus has given us. They called this the, the great commandment we see in Mark chapter 12. One of the scribes came up to Jesus. He heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered well, he said, which commandment is the most important of all? You need to know in context, this is a teacher of the law, somebody that was an expert in the Old Testament law and the Torah, and that rabbis have, have deemed that there are 613 commandments in the Torah. 613. So this guy is saying, which one is the most important of those 613? And Jesus said, the most important is hero Israel from Deuteronomy 6. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, he answered, he gave before they could, they could jump out of it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You know why there's no commandment greater than those? It kind, of, it kind of covers the bases. If, even if you look at the first 10, if you love God with everything you are and everything that you have, and if you love others self-sacrificially, then you've covered the law and the prophets. It sums all of them up. And so Jesus is able to say, this is what it looks like to follow faithfully in what God has called us to. And he gives this as a commandment that endures to us today to love God and to love others, to love God supremely and others sacrificially, to love God with all we have and love others with all, until we have nothing left. This, this, the love of God is, starts in our worship together as local communities of Jesus followers gather every Sunday. Do you, do you ever think about that and how mind-blowing that is? That every Sunday, all over the world, all over our city, all over the DMV, all over the nation, all over the world, that, that there are groups of Christians gathering together to worship the risen Lord Jesus. That's why we gather on the first day of the week, is because it is the day that he was raised from death to life. And so local communities of Jesus followers gather every Sunday, as we have for thousands of years now, and, and we're called by Peter, as he said, as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we exist to worship God together. That He goes on later in that chapter and says, says that he has saved us from darkness to light so that we might proclaim his excellencies. 
And the first and primary way that we love others is to obey the Great Commission. Jesus said in Matthew 28, is one of the, it's the last verses in Matthew's gospel, and he had told his disciples to gather up to a mountain in Galilee. And so it tells us the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, this is, I love this. Even the disciples, in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus, with the whirlwind that had been through these weeks, when they, come, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. But Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a pretty clear signal that, if, if, and this is the reality of Christianity, if Jesus was raised from death to life, and he claims all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, then we, we've got to listen to what he's going to say next. If Jesus was not raised from death to life, then Christianity has nothing to stand on. But if we believe that, it, that he indeed was raised from death to life and ascended to heaven where he now reigns and rules over all things, then when he says this to us, we've got to listen. And so he said to his disciples, and it extends to us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, listen to this promise, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the first and primary way we love others is to introduce them to Jesus for the sake of their souls and their lives. But we also need to be careful not to forget that there are implications of that great commandment to love others as ourselves that come through. James, Jesus' brother, captured this in his letter when he said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. You see that our statement of faith said to um, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. Now, you can't just bear witness to the gospel in deed. This is the classic misquote of St. Francis of Assisi. I feel bad for the guy because he's been dead forever. And people say, misquote him all the time and say that he said, um, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. That's like saying eat healthy meals at all times, and when necessary, use food. The gospel is first and foremost news, is a proclamation of God's goodness, that the creator of all things, that we rebelled against him in sin, that Christ came to redeem us, and he's coming to restore all things, and that by faith in him, we're brought into the family of God. But that doesn't mean that it stops there. We also need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. James said, then you're deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man. You've got to get some of the comedy of scripture here. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what it was like. But he who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James says, you want to know what real religion is? If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He goes on later to say, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and, you say to, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and, and warmed and filled, without giving things they needed for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Which is why we say that we need to love God supremely and others sacrificially, living out our faith with deeds, with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. But we also recognize that there's a spiritual battle that God has placed us into. 
that it is combating spiritual forces of evil, that in obedience to Christ's commission, we make disciples, but, all in, but in that we know that it takes fervent prayer in Christ's name. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive and obedient to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so this is, I know this has been a lot of passages. I told you we were going to do a survey of the New Testament. Um, I hope you've been able to stick with me through this. But we see here the nature of, in the New Testament, the developing as, as churches developed and local churches developed, understandings of what a church is and what a church does. And the word of God continues now to multiply through local churches and the planting of new local churches. Because every local church that rightly preaches the gospel shows the gospel through the sacraments, protects the gospel community, that our kingdom outposts to bring the light of Christ's kingdom into that place. And we come together to worship God together and to pray together and support each other. And so this is what we see in, the, in, in Acts, that in Acts chapter 2, the early church, after Peter's first sermon, gathered together and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and prayers. And they, they gathered together in each other's homes and they worshiped together in the temple courts. And, so, and the result of that community was that God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We see in Acts 4 another expression of the local church that they were gathered together sharing and having things in common and and we hear about Barnabas that sold a field to be able to give toward the ministries of the church and people giving and, and committing to be in life alongside each other. And praying fervently. I love, one of my favorite spots in Acts is when Peter and John are dragged before the Sanhedrin. They healed a crippled beggar outside of the temple. And after they healed him, there was a big ruckus And so the Sanhedrin pulled them in. And this is just about seven weeks after Jesus had ascended to heaven. And so we're we're talking about, or seven weeks after Pentecost when the Spirit had come. It was Pentecost, sorry, Pentecost is seven weeks after the resurrection. So this event was two months after Jesus was arrested. Peter and John are called before the same group of people who condemned Jesus to death. If you remember Peter's story, one of the only things that all four Gospels track is that Peter denied knowing Jesus three times the night he was arrested. He wasn't even in front of the Sanhedrin. He denied it to a servant girl at the door. And so this Peter, who had been scared to align with Jesus, then heals this crippled beggar, he and John, and they get arrested by the same group or dragged before the same group, questioned by the same guys, and then and they say, you have to stop talking about this guy, Jesus. And Peter and John respond by saying, you judge yourselves whether we obey God or men but we cannot stop talking about what we've seen and heard. They show a boldness, and they have nothing on them, so they release them. And when they got released, we read in Acts 4, they went to their friends. What did they do? The first thing they did on getting released from prison was to go to their friends, go to their church. They reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God, saying, Sovereign Lord, who who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against, and, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in every city they were, ga- they were gathering together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And listen to this. When they had prayed, the place that they were in, that they were gathered together, was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you hear this? That when the church was gathered together, Peter and John had been arrested and commanded not to speak. They gathered together, and what did they ask God for? Did they say, Lord, give us a hedge of protection so that this doesn't happen again? No. Did they get scared and shrink back and say, well, we've got to mind our P's and Q's and stay out of the public eye? No. They said, Lord, you know what's happening down here. You know what we're facing. Give us greater boldness. Give us the boldness to keep going. We know that all this is happening. You see it, but, but give us boldness to proclaim your word and to be a part of your good work in healing and bringing healing. And they continued, and God shook that place. Guys, this is what I want for us. Whatever we face, that we would come together as a church, that we, when things get hard, when we face adversity, when, when we're run down, when we're not sure what's going to happen, that we run to each other and say, hey, let's pray together, and we lift our voices to praise God for his goodness, and we're able to say together, look, God, you know what's happening here. You know what we're facing. You know the realities of this place, so would you give us the boldness to be your witnesses here? Would you fill us with your spirit to be a part of your good work here? Would you move through us for the good of this place in spite of whatever we face? And that God would shake this place. So all of this is the foundation. This is what a church is and what a church does. And so as we today, as a church, come together, we're calling everyone, all of you who call Redemption Hill Church home to join us in making a commitment. Again, if you're new today, we're not expecting a commitment on your first Sunday, but this gives you an idea of who we are and where we're headed. If you're not a Christian, please know that, that we've walked straight through scripture today, and this is not exhaustively what a church is and does. There's a lot more in the, contained in the New Testament, but you're seeing that this is what a church ought to be about. And we don't always get it right, and some twist, it, twist churches beyond recognition, but, but we've got to look to God's word for true Christianity. And my hope today is that you would turn and realize that there is a place for forgiveness of your sin and hope in a Savior, and that you'd be, you can be welcomed into the family of God by Christ, called a son or daughter of the King. If you are part of the church, we've asked for you to consider, prayerfully consider two commitments over the past couple of months. The first one was we would love to see our church be fully engaged in the work alongside us. And so we have these bookmark-sized commitment cards. There's a QR code on the back that takes you to a digital copy of this. And if you're going if, if to fill this out today or in the, in the next week or so, um, we'd ask that you fill that one out online. 
This is really the core of everything, that we're, we need everyone who calls this church home to join us in the work of ministry in this place. You've got to understand that we got rewired in some bad ways through the last few years. And we need to remember that serving is actually good for your heart and your soul. It, it expands your compassion for people. It builds community. Remember the Bonhoeffer quote, we don't want you to come and just consume here, but we want you to be a part of God's work. And in that, you will find way more fulfillment and excitement and joy. And so our hope is that you'll do a self-assessment on what your capacity is and what you would like to commit to in the coming year. Um, you don't have to click just one of those options. You can, you can choose as many as you like. But this is first and foremost. And some of our ministries are doing okay right now. Some of them have teams that are pretty full right now. Some of them do not. Um, our, before COVID, just as a, as a point of, of reference on this, before the COVID pandemic and restrictions, our music ministry had over 40 people involved in it. If you've been around lately, you'll realize that right now we're down to less than 10 which means our musicians are stretched way too thin. If you have gifts musically, don't hold back on us. We need you. Right now, some of you, I've had some people ask, what's going on with Pastor Eric? He hasn't been, doing, he hasn't been involved in the services as much lately. That's because most Sundays, not most Sundays, a lot of Sundays right now, he's getting seconded to the tech team <laughs> because we don't have somebody to run sound. And our sound, our sound crew is incredible, but they're stretched too thin. If you want to learn how to run all the shiny buttons on a digital soundboard in the different colors, we can train you. If you want to learn how to run ProPresenter, the presentation software, it's advancing slides. You can do it. Justin, who's doing it today, is one of the best. And I know it's one that you, people only recognize when you mess up, and they're like, why isn't the slide changing? But... <laughs> The ministry of our tech crew is the amplification of the gospel. They're the ones who make it possible for, uh, for you to hear our worship and, our, and the preaching and the prayers, who broadcast it out so others can join us, so you can catch up on podcasts if you want to. And we need help there. Our kids' ministry always needs help. I mean, don't serve in that one if you hate kids. <laughs> We're not asking for that. I will say that if you're a single guy and, you're, and you're, you would like to not be a, sing, a single guy anymore um, and you're not serving kids ministry, I've got nothing for you. That is a <laughs> ticket. But what we're asking is that we be the church together. And so I want to be clear on this because I've had people say like, oh, this is just a building campaign, just a building campaign. No. We're saying we need to be the church together and we need every buddy, buddy who calls this church home, especially if you're a member, to be in it with us. It's not on the staff and leaders that, remember, Ephesians 4 says that God has given leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. My job primarily is to try to help you to do the ministry of God's work. And so that's the primary goal, and I hope that if you call this church home, that you'll commit with us today for the next year on what it'll look like for you to be involved and engaged with, our, with your church the secondary commitment that we're asking for is a financial commitment. And we've talked about this, that we set a lofty goal. We're not on pace for it right now. And I've had people ask, like, what if we don't hit the number? Then we don't hit the number, but we still make progress. But this is a, is a recognition that at Redemption Hill right now, we are not, um, we, we're, we, are, we don't have enough to be flexible and fluid if something should happen. 
We have to be clear-eyed about the fact that we love this place and we have no heat. And we don't know what will happen and we want to be able to, be, to ha- be able to make plans on a longer term as a church that we don't have the, the resources to be able to think through now. And so this includes our budget for ministry over two years. It includes giving and mission so that we're giving toward church planting and we're, we're saving funds and we're ready and we're hoping to be postured to invest into church planting locally, whether that's partnering with someone that's already doing the work in the city. There's lots of need and opportunity. But it's also looking for, toward our future for the sake of sustainability and agility and seizing future opportunities. Because what I hope is that Redemption Hill Church can be an enduring and faithful presence here. I want Redemption Hill to outlive me and my time here. I want it to outlive us. And so whether you're here for six months or 60 years, the hope is that while you're here, you'll be present fully. That you won't be thinking about plan B or your escape route, but you'll invest yourself fully, your time, your talent, your treasure in ways that are sacrificial and joyful and generous. That we will together rally together to say, you know what, I'm going to invest the good things that God has given me into his work through this church so that it can be set up to be a long-term witness to the gospel in this place. And so that's what we're calling you to, and we would love, you can submit this one digitally, or we're going to have a time in the service today where you will be able to come forward to submit this card as well. And so if, you're, if, you're, if you call Redemption Hill home, I hope you're prayerfully considering this. We want to be a part of God's work here. We want to, be, we want to have our church shaped by the good news of the gospel, that we want to be rooted firmly in God's word, and we want to be a part of God's work here. And we want that to be true, not just for us as individuals right now, but to be, to be working into something that will have a legacy that far outlasts us. And so that's why we're in the midst of this. That's what the Dwell Initiative is about, is truly to be an enduring and faithful presence. And so today, um, I'm, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we do every Sunday, we're going to sing together, and then I'll come back up and explain how we're going to, to take these commitments together. But this is what we're calling our church toward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us. We thank you for the church, for the good news of the gospel. I pray today that your word will be like an alarm (laughs) that grabs our attention, that wakes us up a little bit, that lets us know that there's something that you're calling us to, and that we want to see, Lord, what what you've done throughout history and been bringing revival and seeing sleepy Christians wake up and engage with you and realize that, that we've been asleep to see Christians who are nominal but haven't actually come to you and trusted themselves to Jesus, really doing so and coming into faith and being saved. And Lord, we want to see lost people brought into your kingdom. We want to see people turn to Christ and have their lives transformed and their joy secured in him. We want to be a part of your good work here and and not be those who aren't doers of your word but but just hearers, but that we would also do good work as, as we join you in your work here. And so we thank you that we have the privilege in Christ to join you. And we pray that you would move by your spirit today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.